But one of the things that makes us who we are is our family of origin, uh, the family we grow up in or the family you're currently growing up in. One of the things you learn if you move out of home, maybe if you share a house with other people or if you get married, one of the things you realise is what you know as normal, the only right way to do things, other people, well, they do it wrong. They, they don't even see that they do it wrong. It might be they don't wash sheets and towels every Monday or it might be who is meant to take out the rubbish bins. Now, those kinds of differences, they're, they're not much in the scheme of things, but there are other behaviours we learn from our family of origin, behaviours that shape us, behaviours and roles we take on, especially when there's pressure, when there's anxiety or tension, particularly within a family relationship. And it's worth thinking about this and how it shapes you. Things like, what was authority like in your family? Was it wielded with harshness? Were you taught to relate respectfully to those in authority? How were mistakes dealt with? Was it a family where you could make mistakes and learn from them? Were you patiently corrected and taught? Or were you made to feel ashamed by the smallest infringement? Uh, Did your family do hot conflict or cold conflict? Did people debate and argue directly? Or did they isolate and talk behind each other's backs? And how do you reckon this shapes how you deal with differences and tension now? Was your family a place of celebration and joy? Or were there always dark clouds on the horizon? As we get to these last few sentences of 1 Thessalonians, it feels a bit like a grab bag of things, like Paul's just getting onto paper everything that's in his head. But what's really going on is Paul's continuing and concluding a section he began in chapter 4. In chapter 4, it's about living to please God. And it's also about what we read in chapter 5, verse 5. Believers are children or sons of the light and of the day. We are children of the family of God. And so we're to live in the light of the resurrection and the return of Jesus. And so as believers in Jesus, we're children in the family of God. And so this last section is about the values and behaviours where to inhabit now we are in God's family. If you're in Christ, this is your true new family. And this passage shows us how to relate to one another and to God as his church and as his new family. So with church, Paul deals with two types, two categories of relationships, relating with leaders and relating to one another. And he begins with leaders God's family respects leaders. Have a look at verse 12. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Now I'm not going to go into this too much. What the Bible says is clear, and labouring the point could feel awkward or feel self-serving. What God says about how Christians relate toward church leaders is clear, but it's not popular in our culture. 
Our culture has a strong dislike and distrust of authority and leadership. We're not a culture that, in general, respects and regards authority, but in God's family we do. But one of the good bits of our culture, in our distrust of of authority, is we value holding leaders accountable. And this is true in God's family too. In God's family, we both respect leaders and hold them to account. In fact, under Christ, holding people accountable is respecting them. It's taking their role in God's family seriously. It's taking our obedience to Christ seriously. In church, leaders, so ministers, elders, overseers, whatever they're called, Christian leaders are accountable ultimately to God. And because of this, leaders submit to being held accountable by God's people. So brothers and sisters, if an elder or minister or anyone in leadership in our church, if I'm not living or teaching according to God's truth, step one, talk to the person. But if the sin or the false teaching is too serious, if it's not just a mistake, but it's false teaching, if the sin is publicly bringing Jesus into disrepute, or if I or whoever it is, if they're not going to listen into the private conversation and repent, well, in my situation, if that's me in that situation, you need to take it to the presbytery. In our denomination, the presbytery has authority to hold me to account. And godly leaders want to be held accountable. And in the last couple of years, our presbytery has had to do that. It wasn't fun, but it was important. So why does God call us to relate respectfully to leaders? Well, it's because, look at the end of verse 13, end of verse 13, live in peace with each other. Appropriate, accountable relationships enable us to live in peace. Now, in God's family, uh, one of the roles of leaders is to admonish. We see that at the beginning of the section. And admonish means to rebuke or correct. But admonishing isn't only for leaders. God calls us all to be part of growing each other as followers of Jesus. Verse 14, and we urge you, brothers and sisters, so what's about to be said is not just for leaders but for all believers, warn, and warn and admonish is the same thing, warn those who are idle and disruptive, Encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Most of us are unbalanced in how we think about others compared to ourselves. When we fail, when we behave badly, when we sin, Most of us cut ourselves some slack. Oh, I was tired, I was stressed, I was hungry. At least I wasn't as bad as I was last time. But we're different with others. With others, there's no explanations, no excuses, no slack for them. Key to what God says here, in church, we're patient with everyone. We need to realise God is working on each of us at his own pace. We all start in different situations because of our our history, our family of origin. And so as we admonish or warn, encourage and help, we're patient. I think it's a great antidote for judgmentalism is patience. Because we're not looking for pro sorry, we're looking for progress and not perfection. And you notice we also give 
different responses to different situations. To a person who's disruptive, we admonish. That's serious warning. In Titus 3, Paul says disruptive people get two admonishments and then they have to be removed from the church. It is a hard word, but if someone refuses, after being warned, if they refuse to be part of the kind of family God is growing, if they refuse to join in the culture God is creating amongst us, where there's patience and grace for change... As painful as it is, for the good of the whole body, it's the necessary surgery. So that's for the divisive person. But for those who are weak or disheartened, build them up. Now, this requires discernment, doesn't it? Is the person disruptive because they're divisive or because they're disheartened? And this is how they're acting out, their disheartenment. Are they scarred from how they've been treated in the past? And is God working on changing them slowly and patiently? It's not always easy to tell. And that's why God's given us one another. That's why this is addressed to brothers and sisters. It's also why in the Bible, elders are always in the plural because we need many wise heads to think this through. And as we read in verse 15, our patient dealing with people whether they're disruptive, disheartened or weak, it's never about revenge, but doing good. And that's both within the church and with outsiders. And this is countercultural, isn't it? It's countercultural because it goes against our sin nature. Think about a time when you've been embarrassed by someone. Uh, maybe someone publicly pointed out a mistake you made. You sitting there, you just can't wait until they make a mistake, so that you can publicly shame them, repaying evil for evil. Or on you know local Facebook groups, you see someone park badly or put their bin out the wrong way, our culture says, take a photo and share it so the whole internet can pile on its shame. That is not the way of life in Jesus. It's not how God's family behaves. We always try to do what is good for other people. Now, doing good doesn't mean we don't hold people to account. Niceness can actually be unkind to people, can't it? We, we hold people to account, but we do it for building up, not tearing down. We don't talk about people behind their backs. We talk to them directly for building up not tearing down. It's private conversation rather than public embarrassment, patient, gentle words, listening and asking questions rather than accusations. And this is because this is how our new family, our children of light family lives. So it changes the way we relate to one another. And being in this family also teaches us how we relate to God. When the gospel came to Thessalonica, the believers learnt God loves them. It's an astounding claim that God loves imperfect people. But that's what we read in chapter 1, verse 4. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. And not only does God love his people, he likes us. God is pleased when we live his way. Chapter 4, verse 1, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. 
I don't reckon it's too much to say God smiles at his people. In Christ and through the Spirit, God smiles at us. And so knowing God's love and his pleasure means his people are known for joy and thankfulness. We smile back to God. Verse 16, rejoiced always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Little kids very quickly learn to mirror the faces of the important adults in their life. If you smile at them, they smile back. If you're grouchy at them, they get grouchy back very fast, don't they? In the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit, God loves us. God smiles at us. And that's how we can rejoice always, even when we're feeling the heat. How is it that we can be thankful in all circumstances, even when things are tough? It's because the cross and the empty tomb keep saying, God smiles at you. God loves us enough to give his his only son. Jesus has poured out his Holy Spirit and God is pleased as we walk by the Spirit. Now in these verses, rejoice always, give thanks continually, God isn't calling us to ignore hard things in life. For example, in chapter 4 we read, death brings grief. The Psalms are full of laments. We're not to ignore the hard things in life, but the gospel brings hope and so we grieve and we lament with hope. And do you notice in the in these verses, in the middle of rejoicing and giving thanks, prayer is the meat in the sandwich. Uh, praying means asking. Now, of course, when we pray, we can give thanks and express joy to God, but we pray, we ask because something is lacking, something is missing So we pray. We pray for rain because we need it. We pray for wisdom and strength in difficult relationships because we need help. When we find joy hard, we pray. When we find thankfulness hard, we pray. Joy, prayer, thankfulness, it's how we live under pressure. When we find rejoicing or thankfulness hard, when the the pressure is pushing in, we pray. When joy and thankfulness is easy, we pray to express these things to God. I reckon all three things, all three of these, are a struggle for us as a church. Do we practice joy? Would you say we are a prayerful church? Are we full of thankfulness? How do we grow in these? Well, it's by knowing God keeping our eyes and hearts on the God we meet in Jesus. If this is who God is, if he loves us and he is pleased when we live in his will, we have reason for joy, prayer and thanks. And so then in God's family, we relate to God with our emotions, joy and thanks. And we also relate to God by listening to him. Verse 19, do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. I reckon we've got a few different responses to these verses in our church here, in our room today. I reckon some of us have been fearing. Others have been really looking forward to these verses. For for Paul and the church in Thessalonica, 
This is something Paul can address in just a couple of words. But for us, since the rise of Pentecostalism last century, the mention of prophecy and the spirit could bring up all kinds of emotions. You might feel guilty or feel you're missing out, that your Christian experience and faith is inadequate because prophecy, whatever it is, prophecy hasn't happened in your experience. Or you might have been hurt by someone claiming to be a prophet. They claim to have a message from God that was false and caused havoc and pain in your life. Or maybe you've had a positive experience of something which you called prophecy and you reckon reformed and evangelical churches, they just need to get with the program. We come to these verses with our own stories and experiences. I can think of three times I've had people claim to have a prophetic message for me. I've On the internet, there are plenty of people claiming to be prophets. I've seen some of them as well. But I'm talking about those times when it was a in-person, personal kind of experience. And so here's my limited experience. Uh, the message was either heresy or a horoscope. Uh, when I was at uni, I was doing a Bible study with some people and a bloke came in and said, God wanted us, the, the Christian group, to combine with the Muslim student group because it's the same one God. Our response was no, because in Deuteronomy 13, there's a warning that lying prophets would tell God's people to worship false gods. He wasn't a prophet, he was a heretic. The other experiences you can ask me about after, over morning tea, I'm not going to go into, but they, the claimed prophecy sounded like a horoscope. It was so vague that of course it was simultaneously true and false at the same time because there was no content to the message. It was like reading a horoscope. Uh, in the New Testament, there's not loads said about prophecy. It's hard to work out exactly what, what it means to not despise prophecy. Uh, in the book of Acts, there are two examples of a bloke named Agabus, Agabus is called a prophet and he gives warnings about future events. Uh, There's another mention in Acts 13 where prophets and teachers work together to send people, it's Paul and Barnabas, to send people out on mission. The main detail we have on New Testament prophecy is 1 Corinthians 14. There, prophets aren't predicting the future. They're proclaiming the gospel. Uh, The result of prophecy in 1 Corinthians 14 isn't people getting some special insight into the future so they know that now's the right time to buy or sell property for maximum profit. No, the result of prophecy, and I've got it up on the screen there, is people being converted. An unbeliever is moved to declare, God is really among you and repents and believes. And this understanding of prophecy actually fits the majority of prophecy in the Old Testament. Overall, prophecy isn't foretelling, it's forthtelling. It's less predicting the future and more proclaiming God's message to a particular people now. Think of John the Baptist, a prophet, a great prophet. He doesn't really predict the future. But he calls people to repentance and proclaims Jesus is God's promised one. So I reckon there are two ways we could quench the spirit. One is to not expect the spirit to be at work, to think, oh, look, God's not in the business of saving sinners and changing lives. We don't expect God to be at work so we don't share the gospel. We quench the spirit when we approach the Christian life and this is our problem, isn't it? We approach the Christian life as mainly about thinking the right thoughts. If if we've got the right doctrine, 
That's the main thing in the Christian life. Rather than that through gospel truth, God is powerfully at work by the Spirit. He is changing our lives. And also realising a significant way God does this is as our leaders and as our brothers and sisters in Christ admonish us. God is powerfully at work as we grow and change and become more and more like the people God has called us to be. God works through his word and also through our relationship with one another. God and church go together and so disconnecting from either is a way of quenching the spirit, removing yourself from the sphere in which God admonishes and changes us. Another way of quenching the spirit is not testing everything. This is probably less our risk, but we need not fear churches that claim to be more open to the spirit if in being open to the spirit, they are closed to the Bible. If in not despising prophecies, they also don't test everything. God's authority is found in scripture. And that means we test preaching. I hope your Bible is open right now. Test preaching against God's word. It means if someone claims to have some message from God, their words sit under the authority of the Bible. Which does raise the question of why we would need such a message when we have God's sufficient and authoritative word, the Bible. Uh, When the heretic came into the Bible study, it was very easy to test his claims against scripture. Uh, With the horoscope prophets, what they said was so vague, it couldn't be tested against scripture, so you throw it away. All right, so we've heard how in God's family, one, we relate to one another with respect and patience, even as we hold each other accountable under God. And we relate to God with joy, dependence and thankfulness as we submit everything to the test of God's truth in Scripture. In these last couple of verses, which are harder to tie together, in the last few verses, we hear how holiness and love, holiness and love are the overarching defining values of God's family. So verse 23, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read, read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now, the word sanctify uh, is a form of the word holy. Because of Jesus, holy is who Christians are. By faith we are united to Christ and so our holiness is his holiness. Have a listen to Colossians 3.12. Therefore as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. And then the verse goes on to explain how because of who we are, we are holy. Now God's people live holy lives. It's the same thing here at the end of 1 Thessalonians. As God's chosen and loved people, God is continually at work making us more and more holy, more and more like Jesus. Uh, The words through and through, it's not about perfection, but progress, continually living into the values of our new family until either we die or Jesus returns. And because this is what God is on about, we pray for holiness. It is God who changes us. He is faithful. He will do it. Just as being saved is the work of God, so is growth in Christian maturity. 
And I reckon this is why Paul asks for prayer. I love that. Paul and Timothy and Silas, they're not solo super apostles. They're not somehow higher or better than the believers in Thessalonica. No, he depends on the support of other Christians. Brothers, pray for us. Even at a distance, he is connected. I don't think he asked for the church in Thessalonica to pray for him because God's a politician. God doesn't act because more people pray. He doesn't listen to the loudest lobby group. Paul asked for prayer because prayer is an expression of Christian love. Paul asked for prayer because prayer is an expression of dependence on God. Paul depends on God. He is needy just like all of us. Uh, For those who read Caring for One Another last term, do you remember chapter 1? If we want to grow as as a caring church family, we need to be humble enough to be like Paul. We need to humble ourselves enough to ask others to pray for us. Do we do that? Ask people to pray for us. Or do we not want to bother people with our concerns? Or we don't want them to know our weaknesses. That's pretty stupid, isn't it? Because at the core of the gospel, at the heart, one of the core parts of the gospel is we are weak. We are weak, which is why we depend on God's grace. The last words of the letter, the grace of Jesus remain with you. This is what defines the new family we have in Christ, the family which is expressed in our church. We are we're a family grounded on, founded on, united in and dependent on grace. We're only in this new family because of Christ's grace. We only change and grow in holiness because of Jesus' grace. This is why we keep our eyes on the cross. This is how we live in the light of the return of Jesus because of the grace of Christ, which is with us. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you for rescuing your people from the kingdom of darkness and bringing us into your family. Please help us, those who trust in Jesus, to live as your family. Help us respect leaders, holding leaders and each other to account for the, to the ways of your family. Grow us in joy and thankfulness. Make us a people of prayer. Strengthen us to live wholeheartedly toward you and to walk by the Spirit. Give us wisdom and insight to test everything. Make us a holy church, growing into the likeness of your Son, Jesus. Grow us in grace. Amen.